Today, on the 34th week of Ordinary Time, we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King, or the Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. I think there's a question that must be asked of all of us when we celebrate this feast. And I think that question to each of us is, Christ really King of our lives? Have we really given ourselves over and submitted ourselves fully to the authority of Christ in our life? Or do we find ways to maybe put him away for a moment throughout our day? Or do we consistently live our life in a manner that doesn't resemble at all that Jesus is our Lord and our King? Do you make decisions throughout your day that totally eliminate him in which you are only counting Upon yourself. I think these are important questions to ponder for us on this day. And understanding that Jesus is our King, we also kind of have this pondering question at the back of our minds that says, well, if He is a King, then He must have a kingdom. And so where is that kingdom upon which Jesus rules? Some would say that it's merely in heaven. And I'll get to that here in a moment. But the kingdom that Jesus ushers in is not the kingdom that the Israelites were expecting in the Old Testament. And it may not be the kingdom that we would fully imagine it to be either. The king that the early Jews or the Jews in the first century were expecting was one who was going to come like David, who was going to come in full battle array and would lead them to conquer ultimately Rome, who was the imposing power at the time. And to conquer them, shove them out of Israel and establish them as the one, as their own kingdom in Israel once again. But Jesus proclaims himself king. He doesn't come in battle array, or at least not in the manner in which they were expecting. He doesn't come in a suit of armor or anything like that. But in our gospel today, we hear that they put him up to trial. And they put him on trial first and foremost before the Sanhedrin as a blasphemer, one who proclaims himself to be God. But not only do they convict him of being a blasphemer, but they also, because the Jews weren't allowed to put anyone to death by their own law and also by the Roman law, they then turned him over to the political authorities in order to try him as a political criminal as well. And so the Jews themselves proclaim him as king, in a sense, just by putting him forth as a political criminal, one who is coming to to take the kingship for himself. But he's not like, he is like David, and yet he is not like David. He is David in the sense he is in the line of David, but he is not coming as a political king. He comes to bring freedom, not freedom from politics or from the political enemies, but he's he's bringing freedom from sin and freedom to live in right judgment and to live in the freedom that God gives him. We know this from our readings today. And there's two terms or two, two terms that are used in the prophet Daniel today that are very important for us to have a fuller understanding of because they help us to understand who Jesus is Because one of these terms Jesus uses to refer to himself over and over and over again in the Gospels. 
And it's from Daniel chapter 7, which is one of the most important passages or one of the most important uh, chapters in the Old Testament explaining who the Messiah is going to be. And so these two terms that are used in the prophet Daniel today are the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And the prophet Daniel says, One like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. The term Son of Man in the Old Testament is almost always referring to a human being. They refer to David as the Son of Man. We know who David's we know who David's father is. We know that his father is Jesse. We know who Jesse's father is. But also the patriarchs are referred to as the Son of Man. In the in Daniel today, it's a heavenly being that appears as the Son of Man. So the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, which is interesting. That in heaven there is one like the Son of Man. He looks human but is divine. And we see this divinity because in because he comes on the clouds of heaven, which is an expression that is always used speaking about God. God who comes on the clouds. And so Daniel, when we read through the whole chapter, is a little bit puzzled by this imagery. Because one, like a son of man, is coming on the clouds, and yet there's this image of God that is normally used throughout the Old Testament to explain who God is and how he comes. And so we begin to recognize that the heavenly son of man is also the Messiah, the long awaited king of Israel. The second phrase then, or the second term is the ancient one or the ancient of days. It has ancient one in our reading today. A lot of times it's, it's uh, the ancient of days. This is an image of God who is seated upon his heavenly throne. Probably why whenever we see images of God the Father, we see him on a throne with a long white beard and flowing white hair. So this image that is happening in the, in the book of Daniel is taking place in heaven. It's not on earth. Daniel is caught up into heaven. He has this image of heaven. And he isn't saying that the Messiah is ascending the steps to sit on the throne of Solomon or the throne of David. The Son of Man is riding on the clouds to ascend to the throne of the Ancient One or the Ancient of Days. And so we know that this is a heavenly kingdom that is not an earthly kingdom. And so what is this heavenly kingdom like? What is this kingdom of God that is being ushered in? What is the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in look like? Well, once again, in Daniel chapter 7, we have an explanation of it. We see that there are three characteristics of this kingdom. We see that it is heavenly. It's given to him, not on earth, but in heaven. And we see this as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. One, like a Son of Man receives, received dominion, glory, kingship, all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. And that's the second aspect, is that it is also everlasting. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not like David's kingdom, which will pass away. And David's kingdom did pass away. Shortly after David lived, the kingdom was divided. Eventually they were in exile. And then they were eventually brought back to Israel, but under oppression of foreign powers. And so David's kingdom ultimately did fall away. But this one will not. And the third characteristic of this kingdom is that it is universal. 
It's not just meant for Israel. It's not just for Jesus to raise up uh, a new king following him in order to reign just in Israel. But this kingship, this kingdom is for all peoples, all nations, all languages. Everyone is meant to be brought into this kingdom. And so where do we find this kingdom? Is this kingdom something that we experience in the here and now? Or is it something that, experience, that is only experienced in heaven? St. Augustine helps us to answer this question. St. Augustine, writing on our gospel today, says this. Indeed, his kingdom is here until the end of time. And until the harvest comes, will contain weeds. And this could not happen if the kingdom were not here. There's no way that the weeds could be growing in heaven. The weeds can only be growing on earth. But even so, it is not from here. For it is in exile in the world. Christ says to his kingdom, You are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Everyone who is reborn in Christ becomes the kingdom that is no longer of the world. For God has snatched us from the powers of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This kingdom that Christ ushers in is a kingdom that begins now. It begins here. And as St. Augustine says, it begins in those who are baptized. It begins in those who are, are baptized into this life in Christ. Those who are reborn in Christ become a member of this kingdom. And so as we are reborn in Christ and members of this kingdom, we are not made for this world. And yet we find that even after our baptism, we still sin. We still have these weeds that crop up in our lives and we still have to go and yank them out through the sacrament of confession. But this kingdom belongs now. It is not perfect here on this earth because we are not made perfect yet, but we are meant to be made perfect. And we count upon the sacraments and we count upon the grace of God and this life of virtue that we strive for in order to be made perfect for the heavenly kingdom. We begin to experience this heavenly kingdom here on earth as well. The wonderful thing about our church is that we recognize that we are not alone when we come to mass. We are not alone in this world. We recognize that Christ provides all of this for us, but the whole church is not just made up of us who are sitting in the pews. The whole church is the church triumphant, those who are in heaven. It is the church suffering, those who are in pur- purgatory, who are in need of being made perfect for their final passage into, into heaven. And finally, the church militant, those of us who are still striving in this world. Those of us who, who still strive for eternal life. In Lumen Gentium, one of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, one of the main documents of the Second Vatican Council says, the church, or in other words, the kingdom of Christ now present in mystery, grows visibly through the power of God in the world. This inauguration and this growth are both symbolized by the blood and water which flowed from the open side of the crucified Jesus and are foretold in the words of the Lord referring to his death on the cross. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all things to myself. As often as the sacrifice of the cross in which Christ our Passover was sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, in our altar here, 
The work of our redemption is carried on. And in the sacrament of the Eucharistic bread, the unity of all believers who form one body in Christ is both expressed and brought about. All human beings are called to this union with Christ, who is the light of the world, from whom we go forth, through whom we live, and toward whom our life strains. Lumen Gentium, paragraph 3, the very beginning of the document, begins to set up for us who we are meant to be. We are called in Christ through our baptism to bring all the world under the reign and under the kingdom of Christ. This is why we are sent out into the world to preach the gospel everywhere we go. So what does it mean for us, for Christ to be king? It means that everything that we do is for him. Our families are for him. Our work is for him. Our personal life is for him. We submit everything of who we are to his authority. Even in those places of our heart that we don't want to submit to anyone, we submit that to our Lord as well. And allow his kingship, his lordship to rule over our hearts. Everything that we ought to be, ought to do, everything that we ought to do is for the glory of God. And the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus is not a tyrant. He doesn't come and impose himself upon us. He desires a relationship with us. He desires to propose his kingdom to us. He desires for us to respond with a yes. A yes to allow him to rule over our lives. This kingdom first began in the Garden of Eden, was torn apart by original sin. And so he gives us all the treasures of the church through the sacraments. If we stay faithful to him and we stay faithful to their reception, and we enter into prayer with him, we will continue to live in that kingdom that he has prepared for us. Ultimately, with the kingship of Christ, if he is not Lord and King of all, then we have to ask the question, is he really Lord and King of all? And if we submit ourselves to him, he promises to repay us 30, 40, or 100 fold in the, life to, in the life to come. If we just submit our lives to his authority.